Hi, Carrie. How is it with your soul today? Hey, Parker. It is so good to talk to you today. Um, you know, honestly, I am navigating a paradox. Well, I think I know the paradox you mean, but we'll talk about that in a minute. That puts you right on the growing edge along with the rest of us. So welcome to the growing edge. I'm Parker Palmer. And I'm Carrie Newcomer. To the words and habit to us and how we live between the words. All right. Holding a paradox, navigating a paradox. It's what I've been doing a lot in, in the last month is how do I hold really uncomfortable feelings, anger, outrage, um, uh, uncertainty, worry, you know, those kinds of feelings, and hold that at the same time with love and compassion and, um, and grace, even. So I'm, I'm, you know, are those two mutually exclusive, or can I hold them together in a creative way? So that's, yeah. that's what I've been thinking about over cornflakes in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think a lot of us are in that same boat, Carrie, with all that's been happening in our world. And you and I talked a few weeks ago um, about the importance of, of feeling a sense of voice and agency as, as part of the way to move forward with a paradox like that. All this really hard stuff going on, holding it with love and compassion becomes really hard if you feel powerless in relation to it, right? Yes. Um, and so we, we sort of began talking about it in the context of citizenship and our questions about citizenship. And the part of the conversation that really stayed with me from a few weeks ago was this. Um, lots and lots of people feel that there's so much going on in the world and absolutely nothing they can do about it because all of it seems yeah. very remote, all of it seems out there somewhere in Washington, D.C., or in the state capitol, or in the reaches of power that we don't have direct access to. And yet, as our friend Greg Ellison reminds us constantly, Greg, who is such an advocate of nonviolent social change, there's a lot within reach of all of us that's within three feet or so within the three feet or so of our own lives. Yes. It's a, it's a line we've explored before on this program, and I know that both of us continue to find a lot of guidance in that. And so you and I have both talked to people. We've talked to ourselves about, well, look, there are things you can do, things you can say, ways you can exercise agency with the members of your family, with your neighbors, with friends, with fellow parishioners, if you belong to a congregation, etc., etc., maybe even your workplace, all of this within three feet or so when you're in those various settings. And then we, we realize, oh, but a lot of folks in our society have been taught those are not places where you should ever bring up questions of religion or politics, which are among the very things we need to be talking about right now. So, how do we deal with all that? And as we talked, we, we evolved an idea that, I, that I'm really looking forward to exploring with you, and that is, what if we redefined 
conversation about religion and politics? What if yes. we freed those topics from the particulars that hang us up so that we got into some, some clear air, some breathing space, where we could talk about things that are meaningful to everyone and don't have to be divisive? So with religion, you know, instead of arguing about the virgin birth or life after death or uh, any of the theological particulars, Religion at bottom is a quest for meaning and purpose. Uh, it's, it's the way humankind has forever, whether you call it religion or spirituality, kind of tried to make sense out of the big picture of our lives. We're born, we live, we die. Is that all there is? Well, religion, spirituality, the wisdom traditions generally, uh, and there are a wide range of them in the world, have have always wrestled with those questions of meaning and purpose and a sense of belonging. Yeah. What if what if instead of arguing about theology with our friends and neighbors, which isn't really a very tasty enterprise, what if we explored with each other where are you finding meaning and purpose and a sense of belonging? What does that look like? I mean, to me that feels like a much more comfortable conversation. Politics may be a little trickier, but there's also a generic definition of politics, which has nothing to do with what party do you belong to or who are you going to vote for. I think the generic definition of politics is what are the right uses of power and what is our relation to it? Yeah. That, that is something we ought to be able to explore. And I think you and I said well, let's explore it today. Let's explore it live, unscripted, unplugged, uh, on the air, as it were. Both uh, spirituality and politics, but understood more fundamentally than we normally do. Is that? Am I faithfully repeating what we came to? Yeah, and I was really um, moved by our conversation that you're talking about and it really stayed with me and I ended up writing about it and thinking about it a lot. So I'm really excited to explore this. Like you said, just kind of unscripted. What did we both take from that conversation and how are we feeling about it today? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I think the idea that we are, we've been taught, you know, it's one of those things that, we're not supposed to do. We're not supposed to talk about the, anything that may bring argument or conflict. And kind of stepping back from that, and what is that about? But part of that, that conversation of how to approach that conversation may be the way we do it. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have any real interest in arguing, you know, how many angels can dance on the head of a pen. I just, mm -hmm. I just don't. Um, but... I am really interested in having conversations with others about meaning making, you know, that mm -hmm. what gives your life meaning? What is the light that still shines in the world that we encounter, that mm -hmm. we encounter in one another, that we encounter in the natural world? Um, what is it in, in terms of going to politics, not talking about if I'm a Democrat or Republican or independent or, you know, or the particulars, but how are we in relationship to power mm -hmm. and who has it, who doesn't have it? Who uh, should have it. Who yeah. should have more of it. Uh, how do we share it? 
in mm-hmm. a better way than we're doing right now. Um, yeah, yeah. All you know, I'm genuinely, genuinely interested in how that, how all of that is for other people. Yes. Um, I'm 83, and the the quest for meaning and purpose and a sense of belonging goes on and on in my life. It's clear to me right now that. You know, either I'm not doing a very good job with it, or it just goes on in life all the time because your circumstances change, change your experiences change, and the world changes around you, and and you have to, you have to kind of uh, recalibrate where you are or retriangulate where you are, and certainly questions about the right uses of power are are you know, very much up for grabs today, and they're not partisan questions. They're, they're about what each of us believes uh, in, in relation to the right uses of power, especially in, in relation to love, truth, and justice, values that many of us adhere to, claim, value, treasure. Um, and it, it doesn't help to get bogged down in a partisan discussion. So, you know, I, I always think of these lines from the poet Elizabeth Alexander, who, who says in one of her poems, or asks in one of her poems, are we not of interest to each other? Mm, well, yeah. we are. We are. Of course we are. And I, I've, it's my experience that other people are just like me in this regard. We love being asked, how do you make sense out of some of this? What, what is your source of meaning and purpose? If this kind of power came down on you, how would that make you feel? Would you find it acceptable or not? And if so, why? Um, so I think, I think that's the force field we want to be working in today. And um, I think we agreed that we're going to go ahead by kind of asking those questions of each other. Well, maybe I'll start then. You were just talking about the uses of power. Parker, how do you feel personally about others having power over you? Not good at all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm shocked by that. I'm just, I'm just saying that right here now. Like, wow, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, it, it's true. I mean, I'm being honest here, as you know, Carrie. Um, I mean, I, interestingly, a long time ago, when I was 29, I chose a vocational path that would subject me to administrative power as seldom as possible. <laughs> uh, that, that's called a path of independent work. I just, I didn't want anybody, especially given my vocation as a writer and a teacher, I didn't want anybody dictating what I must write about or what I must teach about or how I must write it or teach it uh, as I pursued the things that are closest to the bone, closest to the heart for me. So I chose an independent path where eventually I had to be my own boss, and I've been on that path for the last 40 years. So on that, on that level, um, I have very strong feelings about my personal declaration of independence from all forms of power that might take away the possibility of me pursuing my vocation according to my best lights. On the other hand, as a citizen of a democratic nation, I fully realize and and have, have never railed against the idea that we are a nation of laws and, and not men, as was famously said. 
And that means that there are guidelines, there are boundaries, there are rules and regulations that I need to adhere to and obey for my own sake and for the sake of the common good. So when political power is used as it, as it must be and as it rightfully should be, when political power is used to establish and reestablish those boundaries, those guidelines, those conditions, those things that safeguard the common good, that, for example, contribute to public health. Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm more than willing, as a citizen who's dependent on a much larger community and enterprise than my own little job, I'm more than willing to play by the rules not just grudgingly or not just because I'll be punished if I don't, but because I believe in it. Um, so yeah. to be very concrete, I have had zero problems during the pandemic in accepting and, and if you want to call it bowing down to the authority of science, the authority of public health officials, to do all the things that they were asking me to do to reduce the impact of the pandemic, not only on me, but on my fellow citizens. Uh, and I, I don't understand why some people who, who have no medical excuse or health excuse for not following those rules resist them as vigorously as they do. I, I'd love to have a conversation that begins not with, are you for or against public health rules? But rather, how do you feel about your own relationship to power? And under what circumstances is that comfortable? And under what circumstances is that not comfortable for you? And, and so my, my job, I think, is to have the discipline, to have the clarity, to have the, you know, in a way, the, the good intent of inviting that conversation with people who may disagree with me on all kinds of particulars. Mm-hmm. But if, yeah. we could, if we could understand where each other is on some of these fundamentals, I think, I think it would be net gain for all concerned. And I think, I think taking it to that level, you know, not, not getting into the weeds of the particulars, but really exploring you know, w- what our value system is there and how does it affect each one of us and what is comfortable and what's not comfortable. I mean, there's a conversation there. I think sometimes when you get into the particulars, it, there can be like a wall that comes down immediately. But when you broaden it to the ideas behind it and the personal relationship to power, mm-hmm. then, then there's a conversation that can be had. I think so. Yeah. I, I th- I think and so. it's a different kind of conversation. Yeah. So what about you? How, do, how does... How, how does the whole question of power over or power with or power against play out in, in your life, Carrie? Well, you're asking that question at a very um, important time in history of this country because last month um, a, a right, a human right that w- was taken away after 50 years, uh, Roe was overturned. And... So whenever, whenever the rights of a marginalized community are, are being taken away, that's a real uh, stressor on democracy itself. 
it's the first like right like that that was taken away and and not support you know that's the way forward so as a woman uh you know it's an interesting time talking about the uses and abuses of power and you know without getting into the particulars of it you know I, it's like i'm not I, I just have to say that that doesn't that doesn't fit with my my deep deeply held values and deeply held held um uh understanding of democracy and understanding of compassionate relationship with one another. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, there's that. And there's another kind of power too. When you were talking, I was listening to a podcast, another podcast with Ruby Sales, the, the civil rights activist. Krista Tippett was interviewing her and she started quoting uh, the spiritual that the line in it is, you know, you, you can't make me hate you. It was a certain kind of power she was claiming by singing that spiritual. Um, yes, you can enrage me or make mm-hmm. me angry or, or and she also talked about something, uh, having, you know, talked about redemptive anger and non-redemptive anger uh, or outrage. That redemptive, you know, that's a, you're holding that with love and working toward a more better, kinder world. That, that's holding the paradox that I was talking earlier about. But you know, her point in it was claiming her own power for you know, what she was going to allow into herself and to her, the way that she experienced life, the way she experienced the world, the way she uh, experienced and related to people around her. I can, you cannot make me hate you. Mm-hmm. And I just found that so powerful, knowing, you know, the kinds of things and her talking about the kinds of things that she and so many of the civil rights activists of the last century, you know, went through, and that that was a power that she was claiming. It's Um, a really interesting line, isn't it? I mean, as I think about it, it's, it's a way of saying, you can throw the bait out there, but you can't make me take it, right? Yeah. And and that's that seems to me to be a, a really interesting way to unpack it because in an era of divisive politics such as the one we're in, yeah, um, the bait is constantly being tossed into the water, like chumming for sharks or something. Um, and if we rise to take the bait, and the bait is always come hate me and make my day, you know. Um, kind of Clint Eastwood style, if we rise to take the bait, we just contribute to the problem. And, and all of us have that kind of reflex in us when something is thrown our way that might evoke the hate response. Um, you have to breathe deep and reach deep to, to not take the bait and not contribute to the problem. If we could somehow learn, and I'm talking to myself here as much as anybody, if we somehow could somehow learn to ask questions at moments like that rather than make responses, like, what do you mean? Why did you say that? Um, what, what experience bears on what you just said? Help me understand. Um, does, is that part of what Ruby Sales may have meant, do you think? She did, she did talk about that. And she also talked about 
that civil disobedience and working toward civil rights for uh, persons of color, um, for women's rights in the last century, um, that they did it knowing that they were going to be reviled. They knew that you know they were going to be doing nonviolent um, political action for for change, for positive change, and that it would not come easy. That the sky was not going to open, and God send down the chariot and make it all better. You know when they were on the picket lines. You know they that it was it was going to take real struggle and time and organizing, and so that was a very interesting way to look at it too, that when you are up against an unfair or unju- what you feel is unfair or unjust or against your deepest held values and conscience, it's an imperative to speak, to, imperative to take action in your own way, three feet around you, but knowing, mm-hmm. knowing that it won't be easy. And, yeah. and I think some of the conversations we're talking about, you and I have a certain sense of agency. You know, you, you write books, you, uh, you know, we're both kind of public people that way. And so in some ways, we have a certain kind of agency and, and voice uh, that others may not have so uh, direct access to. But they do have access to what they say and do in their daily lives. Mm-hmm. How does, yeah. how does yeah. that affect? It, it makes, it's the biggest, it's, you know, right. it's, right. yeah, it's how, it's how things change. It's actually... It's it's not just the person like shouting from the mountaintop. It's it's the people day by day, you know, following, fo- trying to follow the best they can. Yeah, living out their values. Uh, absolutely, mm-hmm. it's uh, so much uh, rises up in me as I as as I hear again about the civil rights movement and about people like Ruby Sales. Um, it, one of the things that strikes me about that movement is that they, they really grounded themselves in what they understood as the highest possible authority. Yeah. That, that's why their music is gospel music. That's why the black church was so much at the heart of the mid-20th century civil rights movement. And they were willing to pay the price. Um, unlike some activists I've known, they never complained when they were thrown in jail. We, we knew we were going to go to jail. That was part of the deal. That was part of the witness. I think for, for us chickens, who, all of whom have a family member at least, maybe more, friends, neighbors, fellow parishioners, the stopper is, for many of us, we don't want to pay the price of what turns out to be a divisive conversation, right? We're, we're not, they're not, nobody's going to throw us in jail. But And I want to be heard clearly, I have empathy for this. I mean, some people have a very, very thin social network to depend on. And they can't afford to lose that, that sibling or that uncle or that parent or whatever. Lose them, you know, psychologically, lose them relationally. So that, that's why um, I think we got to talking about, is there a way to redefine these topics and to be able to say, sis or dad or Uncle Joe, um, talk to me about where you have found um, meaning and purpose in your life or, or talk to me about your own relationship with power. Uh, what kind, are, are there forms of power you respect? Are there forms of power you can't abide? What, what's your life experience with that? 
you know, it can start with something as simple as on the job, because in, for most of us, on the job, someone has power over us, and we can explore those those feelings in the lives of very ordinary people like you and me, um, and 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 I think help people understand that maybe there's a way to have this conversation without destroying relationships. Yes. The, the conversation about politics generically understood. Maybe we can have this conversation without having to pay a high price. And maybe stepwise, stepwise, we develop our courage to go into deeper water where maybe we do pay a price. But even if we don't go there, we, we can start with agency uh, we, that we all have within three feet or so of where we live. There was a, a really interesting story. I was doing some songwriting yesterday with our good friend and colleague, um, Gary Walters. Oh, and, yeah. and he read me a quote, and the quote is from a, a, a Zen story. And the, the story goes very briefly that there was a master and an apprentice, and the apprentice was feeling very sad and asked the master what to do about it. You know, what do I do with all this stuff I'm holding, you know? And the master gave him a handful of salt uh, and, and told him to put it in a glass of water and then taste it. And so, he, you know, the apprentice did, and he said, how did it taste? He goes, terrible. He's just like, oh, my gosh. And then... Uh, he said, okay, take another handful of salt and then put it in the lake. And so they walked to the lake, he put it in the lake, and they and he, it was a fresh lake, so he said, now taste it, and he tasted it, and said, how does it taste? It tastes good, you know? <laughs> and so the master sat down with the apprentice and said, you know, all of life's suffering and pain is, is salt, no more, no less. Um, it's, mm. it's how we choose to either narrow our lives or expand our lives, enlarge our understanding, enlarge our lives, enlarge the conversation. And I thought of that story because, you know, I think often when I'm feeling, you know, concerned or worried about it, you know, in terms of my own personal story, I, I can kind of circle around on something I'm really worried about, you know or circle around on something that's really made me angry, that feels really unjust. And uh, I think we had Sharon Salzberg on the program, and she talked about how anger can narrow your vision, yep. how you get really close and narrow vision when you're angry. So after he, he you know, told me that quote and the story, I just started thinking, well, you know, I've been walking around for the last couple of weeks with a glass of salt water. And it's, you know, and that's just not, human beings can't live on salt water, you know? Mm -hmm. You know, you can drink a whole glass of it and you're still parched, right? So, mm -hmm. um, so what is it that actually enlarges that? And what makes it a lake instead of a glass? And mm -hmm. some of that I've been finding is very daily things. You know, what is really beautiful in my life? You know, the lake is you know, working in my garden and, you know, walking with my dogs and conversations with Parker and Allison. It's picking fresh blackberries this morning. It's having voice and agency and doing something daily and personal that really goes along with 
you know, who I most want to be in the world. So it's like mm-hmm. that, that enlarging of the heart, enlarging of the sense of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the kind of conversations we're talking about enlarges the sense of things. You know, if we're just going to talk about virgin birth, that's, a, that's salt in a glass of water, mm-hmm. you know, right? But if we want to talk about meaning making, what is it? Yeah, what was the light that came into the world and is still here? And how do yeah. we access it? And how do we uh, manifest it, you know, and how we walk around? So, so t- tell me about a lake. Tell me about a lake that you, you try to put salt into. I mean, how would you name that, that lake, one of those lakes? I, I, I reckon that you have several uh, yeah. big lakes that you um, go to the shore of when you need to and dump the salt in there. But how would you, how do you understand what one of those lakes is? Well, beauty. You know, beauty is one of the lakes I go to. Art and music, poetry, mm-hmm. literature. Um, I was invited to a, um, there's a, a, I have a wonderful friend, Krista Detour, who has a uh, artist retreat center in southern Indiana called the Hundredth Hill. There were three uh, amazing uh, black women there, artists in residence, a playwright, a, um, a visual artist, and also a musician, a musical artist. And they did a short presentation of what they were working on this month. Uh, and a whole community of women came to, to hear them. The musician was a jazz harpist and sang with it. And Destiny Mohammed, and she, it was just transcendent, you know. Mm-hmm. And I walked out, and I was talking to a friend and saying, "This is exactly what I needed. It was the lake I needed, mm-hmm. because I I needed to hear voice and agency, and resilience and hope. But I really needed beauty, the kind mm-hmm. of beauty that was Mary Oliver said, beauty that makes us want to be worthy of it." You know, mm-hmm. um, the kind of beauty that sometimes grows out of a, a wonderful artistic vision or expression that reminds us of the best of what it is to be human. Mm-hmm. And so that's one lake, you know, that's a, that's a big old lake. Mm-hmm. How about you? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm talking, talking, talking here, but you know, what would be a lake that you would go to if you have, you're walking around with a glass full of salt water? You know, what, what would or, be or just solid salt, as I sometimes do. <laughs> yeah, you know? just rock salt in your hand. Yeah, <laughs> let's, let's well, munch on that. <laughs> I enjoy hearing you talk, so that's not a problem. So, but uh, and I was going to say that you know, when you make music, you're also making meaning. I mean, that's that's so clear. So it's yeah. beauty, beauty experienced in the work of other people and in other people, and beauty experienced in what you put into the world too. You do that for a lot of people. So for me, when I heard the when I heard Gary's uh, wonderful story about the Zen master, what came to mind quickly because I'm basically kind of a simple-minded guy is a lake. <laughs> I mean, I, I go to the lake, you know. <laughs> I literally go to the lake, you know. I have this this thing. Madison is where I live is built on three lakes, and there's this particular path I love to walk through the woods. Um, and down to the shore of, of Lake Mendota, um, where 
you know, it's it's a Midwestern lake. It's it's not an ocean, and I I do miss the ocean. I mean, I've I've always said Madison is the perfect place to live, except that we lack a good mountain and a good ocean. But other than that, you know, it's terrific. So I go to the lake, and I'll just sit there, um, and I'll walk through the woods some more, and I'll sit at another place on the shore, and I'll just take it all in. And I, I think what happens to me there, Carrie, it's not a conscious act of dumping the salt into the lake. I mean, it's not that I have a ritual yeah. of saying, you know, receive my anger or whatever. Um, it's more that kind of the, the atoms of my body, I mean, it's kind of how it feels psychically, the atoms of my body sort of merge with something so much larger than yeah. my ego. Yeah. And and often in anger my ego is involved, you know. My rights have been violated, etc. Uh, and I'm not discounting that because when people's rights are violated, they have a right to react um, and respond vigorously. Anger has a place in our lives. Um, as long as we, you know, learn to ride it as an energy toward good outcomes. Um but I merge with, with something larger than that ego and at some, I think, pre-conscious level almost realize that I'm just a tiny part of this vast ecosystem called the natural world um, whose definition expands daily as we get images from the web telescope like we did this morning. Oh my gosh, uh, these, the web telescope. Uh, yeah, these stunning, stunning pictures of galaxies upon galaxies upon galaxies. Um, but even just in the woods, the simple old Midwestern woods at the shore of a lake, this, this happens to me. It wasn't always this way for me, um, not by a long shot. Um, I think when I was younger and you know, deeply into philosophy and theology, I was always trying to think my way into meaning, right? But maybe um, I can just figure this out. Yeah. Um, and uh, some friends, some good friends along the way, uh, consistently pointed out to me, Parker, maybe it's possible that you think too much. <laughs> you know, it's it's not, <laughs> it's it's not that we don't like the results of some of your thinking. You know, this the, this book or that article or that speech it had a certain merit to it. Yeah, but maybe for you think too much for your own good, <laughs> and uh, you, you you kind of especially when I plunged into clinical depression as I've done several times in my life, I realized I thought my way into this, but I cannot think my way out of it. Yeah. That, that was a simple little breakthrough. And so mm -hmm. there's something about going to the lake that's about letting go of all of these tools I have and just kind of dissolving into the vastness and, as you say, the beauty um, and and the fundamental grace of nature. I mean, there's yeah. no kind of weather that that lake can't handle. And yeah. I've seen it in all kinds of weather. You know, it can handle anything from a calm summer day to a tornado ripping through that area. Um, and that's a lesson for me in terms of how do I 
deal with the weather that passes through my own life um, in a way that sustains me and helps sustain the people who are dependent on me. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I loved hearing about that, Parker. You know, you literally go to the lake. I do. And, you, and um, uh, there's a little pond on the property where I live. I literally go to the pond sometimes and mm-hmm. sit there on the pier and uh, in the evening or in the morning. And it's there is something um, very expansive and expanding about about that the natural world it, for me too that's something for me too that helps me to get beyond the smallness of my mm-hmm. ego to uh, a, a larger sense of things mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that you know there is a the fierce urgency of now and at mm-hmm. the same time stars are being born and stars are fading and mm-hmm. um and that, I don't know, yeah, it, it gives me a larger sense of it, that, yes, there's work to do. There's a lot of work to do. And that work is important. Yeah. Um, yeah. But if I have a larger sense of things, um, that allows me to not be um, sitting there with a glass of undrinkable water. You know, and, yeah. and, and that's where my, you know, my whole sensibility yeah. is. And um, I, I want to add to this, Carrie, for myself, um, that uh, just to say a word about formal religion as normally understood. I, I was very lucky, and it, it's just luck of the draw, to be raised in a, in a middle-of-the-road, pretty generous version of Christianity uh, in the Methodist Church, where my parents were active members. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I eventually found my way to Quakerism, which is a different version of Christianity. That happened in my mid-30s. And I found a real home there uh, in terms of comfort with silence and with the lack of hierarchy in uh, a, a genuine uh, emphasis on community that that, they, that the Quakers live out in practice. No clergy. The community does everything with and and for each other. But I I'm very grateful for certain elements of the Christian tradition as in, as understood in the Methodist Church, in which I was raised, which I also see echoed in this larger container called nature. Uh-huh. Um, grace is one. I mean, nature is full of grace. You know, nature is full of grace. Things die, but they die in a way that feeds new growth very, very visibly in the natural world. There's life and death out there, but there's also this interesting kind of love, you know, this interesting kind of acceptance of everything. Um, and I love nature's way of um, making messes that are ac- actually beautiful. <laughs> look at look at a forest floor when you're hiking through. It's a it's very messy. You know, if my mother would, was there, she'd say, "Clean up your room, Parker," I mean, because there's just stuff all over the floor. But you look at it in the natural world, and good lord, that's a gorgeous quilt. 
that nature has created uh, yeah. with all the stuff that falls and rises on, on the floor of the forest. And so, and there's a kind of forgiveness in nature, you know, um, to use the old-fashioned language. Um, I mean, I remember being on a, on a retreat out in the desert in New Mexico, deep in the desert at a little tiny retreat house where I was all alone for 10 days. And one way of saying what I was doing out there was I was taking my sins with me. <laughs> and I wouldn't use that language today in any sort of literal meaning. But at the time, I think I was struggling with a sense of guilt about this and that. And there was, there was a forgiveness in that desert landscape, which may have been no more than, um, why are you making such a big deal out of yourself, you know? You didn't kill anybody. You didn't permanently harm anybody. Um, we've seen it all before, is what the natural world says. Uh, those, the light in those pictures from the Webb telescope is coming from multi-billions of light years ago. Um, we've seen it all. There's, there's nothing new under the sun. You are forgiven. Um, I just, I think that the interweaves between traditional religious belief and the natural world, and, and the world of art and music, things like consider the lilies of the field. Uh, these interweaves are so interesting. And I have to say that in, in so many ways at, in my life, all of those threads are interwoven, and I'm grateful for every one of them. I love that story of you going to the desert and finding forgiveness there. Um, yeah, the, the, the questions, like I said, the, the particularities of religion are sometimes really hard for me. Um, though they can be very powerful and important for people. It's, and so having a sense of that, there was a time in my history when I could not sit in a, in a Christian church without being mm -hmm. furious. You know, mm -hmm. as a woman, just being furious. And, you know, I kept thinking, well, as a spiritual practice, being furious every Sunday morning, <laughs> I'm not sure how much this is doing for me, you know? Um, and it was important for me to address that. What was that about? Where, where was um, some of the things that were being given to me or impressed upon, or pressed upon me as a woman, um, where was I feeling that, that tension with what I really believed about uh, a radical philosophy of love, the kind of radical philosophy of love that we talked, that Ruby Sales talked about, you know, right. that you cannot make me hate you that love is way more powerful than that, you know? Um, that justice, that, that sense of love and justice. So, so that was a really important time period. That's when I started hanging out with the Quakers because they didn't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Except the person next to you might. And, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and they might nudge in the elbow, elbow in your side. But... Um, so, and, and since then, I've come to be able to sojourn again in all kinds of 
religious community mm-hmm. uh, and interfaith community in ways that uh, that I I can honor the deep aquifer mm-hmm. without getting lost in the particulars, you know. Yep. Um, and that's and that's an important. I, I I think that was a really important evolution for me, you know, to yeah. be able to acknowledge and and really and really um, try to understand what what was at odds, you know, what was yeah. intention of of who I was and what I was what was being pressed upon me. Yeah, well, I think we can readily agree that any form of power that defiles or denies our own identity and integrity is not a form of power to be obeyed, you know. And dignity, if it's if it's if it's defiling our sense of dignity D- as well. Dignity, identity, integrity, yes, mm-hmm. abs- absolutely. That every human being is worthy of respect and if 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 uh, any form of power, religious or political, defiles that or denies that or flies in the face of that, as far as I'm concerned, it's not acceptable, period. Amen. Um, I think, I love the fact that you mentioned the aquifer, because I think in a lot of ways, that's what we're reaching for in this conversation. Is there a way to talk with the people closest to us about the search for meaning and the search for the right uses of power that goes to the aquifer of human experience. Um, and when we, when we get engaged in, in storytelling about the experiences of our lives that have helped shape who we are and how we see things, that's when we get a little closer and a little closer to that aquifer. Um, I've told this story before, but I, it lives with me always that in Quaker meeting once, when that person next to me rose to speak, she said, we seem to think that we can find unity by going up to the highest abstraction we can find, imagining that up there, um, there will be unity because the abstraction is so broad that surely it embraces everyone. But, she said, the problem with going up that way to abstraction is it's unfit for human habitation. There's not enough oxygen up there to breathe. We can't sustain ourselves or relationships that way. If we want to find unity, we need each of us to have the courage to dig deep enough into the well of our own experience until we hit the living water that feeds all the wells. I I heard that that when I was in my 30s, and it stayed with me for 50 years. Um, And I always think of that when people these days talk about the power of story and how redemptive story can be. I just think it's flat out true. And I think what we're reaching for in this conversation is, how do we get closer to that aquifer with the people who are closest to us in our lives? Um, and and stop doing this silly thing of let's not talk about anything that has potential depth to it because we might hit a landmine. So we'll talk about the weather, we'll talk about sports, we'll, we'll talk about, you know, the, the chaff of life rather than the wheat, the seed, <laughs> the real McCoy, um, which is where we're all living. And the hardest, I think, 
for for many of us, myself included, the hardest um, communities to have those uh, what feel like risky conversations are the relationships that mean the most to us. The most intimate ones. Even even if they're sometimes fraught with difference or um, sometimes it's easier to talk to a stranger about something than yeah. it is to try to have these kinds of meaningful conversations with people who we really care about. And um, we may not agree with them, but we love them or we care about them. Mm-hmm. And so taking the step to find that aquifer uh, can feel like risky business. Mm-hmm. You know, like what we're talking about is will feel like risky business. Um, and at the same time, I've, I've often been really surprised and, and, and really um, moved by if I take the first step, sometimes I take the risky first step and I do it in a way that is um, pointing toward the aquifer, that is asking, tell me your story. Uh, again, I keep going back to Ruby Sales. Where does it hurt? Where does this hurt? You know, um, mm-hmm. where where is meaning? Where do you find meaning? Where's the lake for you? Um, what's the salt that you've had to live with? Mm-hmm. You know, those are those are the kinds of conversations and interactions and relations that give my life so much more depth. Yeah, and often, Carrie, I'm just thinking, uh, again, unscripted and out loud, but the people you're, that we're talking about here, those who are closest to us, those we love, they are, they are also people whose, whose stories we know, at least a bit. A bit. And so but, we, we, have yeah. some, we have some data to start a different conversation. Um, I can easily imagine with a particular relative I have in mind who will sometimes praise a politician whose name just sets my hair on fire, just the name. I don't need to hear any more um, about this particular politician. But I know enough about this person in my family to be able to say, well, I remember a childhood experience you had, or I remember someone in our family who is somehow related to what we're now talking about. So without engaging this person directly in, you know, I don't see this guy the same way you do, um, I can go to a story in his or her life that might connect, that might take us down a different conversational path, and that... If, if I'm adept at pivoting that way, if I practice yeah. pivoting mm-hmm. that way, um, I might get somewhere farther, a little farther down the road with this person that I care about. And it might take small steps. You know, like, like I said, leaping in with both feet with a particular yeah. um, uh, may not get anywhere that that leads to a a deeper conversation so it may be small steps and i I think that's important too i in this very divisive time it's this or that it's it's us or them 
you know, being, being willing to take small steps of being in relationship and, and, uh, and also what you're saying about, uh, sometimes people you think you've known for a long time, friends, people you work with, they always surprise me. You know, mm -hmm. there was this, um, my husband and I, we went for a walk in the springtime and it had been raining like crazy. And we went down to this place where we, we walk all the time. You know, we, and we walk this path all the time and we feel like we really know this path. And I love having, you know, parts of the natural world around me feel like old friends, you know, mm -hmm. and it was our anniversary and we were going for this walk and we got to this place where we normally would make a left-hand turn and go up the, go up the hill. And he, and, you know, Robert said, I think, I, I think there's a path. I think you can go farther here. And I said, wow, I never saw that. And, you know, we'd been walking that path for years. And I think because it was rain and, you know, and it looked kind of looked like Lord of the Rings or something. The mist was mm -hmm. rising off the creek and the trees. And, and um, but there was this beautiful metaphor on our, you know, I don't know, like 20th anniversary to say, oh, this person that I've, I do know so well and I love very deeply, um, there's always more to learn that, mm -hmm. you know, he'll tell me a story. It's like, Oh, you never told me that story before. And mm -hmm. it's, mm -hmm. I think we can go a little farther. Yeah. There's a path. There's, there's a, a path. path. It might take small steps, but even with people or situations we think we know, there may be a new path. There may be an open space that we didn't realize was there. Yeah, yeah. You know. Well, I sense a song coming on myself, and I'm hoping that by our next podcast you'll have that song finished <laughs> and you can, you can perform it for us. Well, I do think we're, we're getting to the end of our podcast. I have loved this conversation with you, Parker. This has been like the most wonderful conversation. Thank you. Well, thank you. And it occurs to me that what you can do with good friends is actually take a, a hike for which there are no paths at all. Yeah, just yeah. find your own way, ramble across the fields, which is what we've done today. And I've enjoyed it tremendously. Thank you so much, Carrie. You've been listening to The Growing Edge with Carrie Newcomer and Parker Palmer. Thank you for joining us today, and I hope you'll check out our next episode. And don't forget to visit our website, newcomerpalmer.com, newcomerpalmer.com, so you can join in the conversation too. And now we have a favor to ask. If you like today's show, rate us and leave a review on iTunes. It's the best way to help us reach new audiences and bring more voices into this conversation. All the music you heard on today's show was written by our own Carrie Newcomer, and much gratitude to Gary Walters for performing the song The Clean Edge of Change. And wild appreciation for Allison Quantz for creative envisioning, direction, and production, and because ah, she feeds the lake. <laughs>